0: Your neighbor Jim figured out that with MetroPCS, he gets unlimited data, talk, and text for $30, period. Babe, that color looks awesome. Just like he figured out that shopping with his wife will buy him a night with his buddies. That's guy's night out, figure it out. You too figure it out. Switch to MetroPCS on the fast 4G LTE T-Mobile network for only $30, period. MetroPCS, wireless, figure it out. Coverage not available in some areas. Plan includes first one gigabyte of data at up to 4G LTE speeds. See store or MetroPCS.com for details in terms and conditions and data management info. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinousa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. The show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away.
1: Hey, thank you, Joe Lajanusa. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and this morning, I have the wonderful honor and privilege to have two great guests to share with you. First up is going to be Donnie Hammond. Donnie won twice on the regular tour and once on what was then the Buy.com tour, now the Web.com tour. And you may not remember, but Donnie was also in the mix for what many of us consider the, you know our favorite masters of all time. We'll get that story plus many others uh, from his time out on the uh, PGA Tour now the Champions Tour when Johnny joins me here in just a moment. Following Donnie is going to be Mr. Ben Wright. We'll have Mr. Ben Wright back with us. It's always such a privilege getting to spend time with him. He's one of the greatest broadcasters as you know of all time and in my opinion, one of the best storytellers anywhere on the planet. We'll find out more about his fascinating life and uh, get his take on this year's Masters when he joins me about 25 minutes from now. So it's going to be a great show, and I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour. Next on the tee is brought to you by Seymour Putters. Let's get things started by hearing a word about those wonderful folks.
0: Golfers, has this happened to you? Great drive. Perfect second shot on the green. Only the three or even four putts? Shaking your head all the way back to the cart. I have good news. Help is on the way with the Seymour Putter. The Seymour Putter Company patented RST technology sets up the putter perfectly every time. Using a visible gun sight on the top line. Genius. It's like locking radar onto the target. In this case, the golf hole. Putting the golfer in perfect position to make a reliable and consistent stroke. The 1999 U.S. Open and 2007 Masters champions, both use, you guessed it, the Seymour putter. So if you're ready to make more putts and take strokes off your game, log on to Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com and put a Seymour putter in your bag today.
1: Like Joe said, check out the rifle scope technology that helped win two majors and 35 tour events so far, and it's going to help you make more putts too. Check them out online at Seymour, and like Joe said, it's S E E M O R E dot com. Also, want to kick off this show like we do every single week here on Next on the Tee by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We want to thank all of you for your daily sacrifices and for what you do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank our veterans for all you've done over the years. We truly appreciate what you have done to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have our show be a part of your network. You can find us by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. Also, want to let our veterans know. Be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. dot org. It's a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information designed specifically for veterans that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial. Go to globalvoiceforveterans dot org to find out more information. Also, want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio as well as great radio sites across the internet like Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Player.fm, and Blog Talk Radio as well. Plus. If much dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store or you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone and you can take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. All right. Now joining us on the Seymour Putters guest line is Mr. Donnie Hammond. Before we get to Donnie, let me give you some background on him. He was born in Frederick, Frederick Maryland, which is in the northern part of Maryland near the Virginia and West Virginia lines, he attended Jacksonville University and was a four-year letterman on their golf team. As a sophomore, he placed seventh in the 1977 Sun Belt Championship, and as a senior, he won it. He is a charter member of Jacksonville University Sports Hall of Fame. Donnie earned his tour card by being a medalist at the 1982 PGA Tour Qualifying Championship at TPC Sawgrass, won it by a record 14 strokes, folks played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 1998. He won twice on the regular tour at the 1986 Bob Hope Chrysler Classic and the 1989 Texas Open, where he came within one stroke of the all-time scoring record, having shot rounds of 65-64, 65-64 at Oak Hill. He also won once on the uh, Buy.com Tour, what's now the Web.com Tour, at the 2000 Lakeland Classic, and over the course of Donnie's career, He's had 46 top 10 finishes and made the cut 70% of the time that he teed it up. And I am honored to have him with me here next on the tee this morning. Good morning, Donnie. Thanks for joining me.
2: Oh, sure thing, Chris. Great to be with you.
1: So, Donnie, let, let's start at the beginning. Who, who first introduced you to the game of golf and when did you start playing?
2: I started, I'd say, a little bit late for a lot of the tour pros. I started when I was 13 with my dad, like a lot of players, and uh, we had to go watch the Baltimore Colts practice, which would be about 20 minutes from my house, and then we'd go play nine holes. This is back, you know, it was like Johnny Unitas, Ray Berry, um, Lenny Moore, great Colt teams yeah. back there. And, I, we, you know, we'd go out and throw the ball around with the Shula kids and Don. It was a lot lower-key environment uh-huh. back then. We'd play nine, yeah. and then after, you know, after a couple weeks, I said, Dad, you know what? I really like this golf, and we just – Started skipping the Colts practice, and we'd go play eighteen or twenty-seven, and I was hooked. You know how when you get hooked on golf, it just really gets you, and, and it didn't take long for me. It took a mere two weeks, and I and I just loved the game after that.
1: Wow! So, Donnie, who were some some of your you know you know as as a youngster at thirteen, and when you finally getting started, you say a couple years after that, you know who were some of the guys that you admired growing up?
2: Well, I mean, you know the big the big two pros for me was Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus uh, Arnie, you know, you just watch the way Arnie competed and the way he swung at the ball and, and just, you know, the, the dashing attitude he had out on the golf course, that was, you know, I, I picked up a lot from Arnold early and then the technical part of Jack Nicholas and the, the combination of power, just his thoroughness, the way he would map out a golf course and, and just seemed like he would always make putts on the 18th hole. So uh, I always remember trying to swing a lot more like Jack than I did Arnold, but um, you know those two were the, the two big um, leaders uh, you would say for me uh, growing up, and probably Jack mm-hmm. was my favorite because I, I just watched him play all the time.
1: So, so Donnie, how how does a kid from Frederick, Maryland, in the heart of ACC country, end up playing his college golf at uh, Jacksonville State? The weather.
2: All this, you know, you go through some of those winters, <laughs> right. especially like say this last winter. I got to think there's going to be a lot of people from Boston moving, buying second homes in Florida <laughs> after this last winter. But after right. you know, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade, playing on the frozen tundra in December up there, I thought, you know what, Dad? Maybe we should visit some schools down there in Florida. And that's what we did. We uh, we took a trip, seventy five. Actually, we stopped at the Masters. I had a little gig where I I was a gallery guard there in 75 with my dad. He had a friend in the military that got us. I worked on 13 where the drives come down up there to the right. That was the year Jack Nicklaus uh, held off Tom Weiskopf, Johnny Miller, I think. I was right right. behind the green when Putton held the putter up and kind of jogged off the green. And then the next year, you know, I got back there was 86 and mentioned – that to Jack, and he said, you should have showed up a few more times at the Masters. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I saw the school, I saw the school at Jacksonville, and I thought this this is for me, to come to Florida and play golf year-round, and it, it was a perfect fit for me. We had a great coach, Raleigh Rourke. He was a real athletic um, type that, you know, coached basketball and got us in shape, had us out there jogging stuff. I'm thinking golfers don't have to jog, but You know, he really got us in shape, and um, it was just a great four years. I I had a ball and and really got myself ready to, you know, hopefully go play the tour after that four years.
1: So, Johnny, your senior year, you shot a a four-under-par 68 in the final round of the Sun Belt Conference Championship to finish six-under-par overall, win the individual title. Unfortunately, South Florida ended up winning the team title by a couple of strokes over Jacksonville. But what do you remember about playing those 54 holes?
2: Well, that was kind of right at toward the end of, you know, we're getting ready to graduate. I had a degree in psychology. I was getting ready to finish that up and I was staring right dead into the face of going back to college, get my master's or start working or pursue golf, which is what I wanted to do ever since I was like 14 years old. So time, that was the time that I thought, you know, you got to start playing, you got to start posting some numbers and really get serious about the game. And, you know winning that tournament, I think I won by six strokes, but it was it really gave me the confidence to to go to Florida and chase the mini tours after that, which was in orlando and that um you know that was a nice little tournament for me to to really give me an edge and, and go ahead and pursue pursue my dream
1: and play on the tour and
2: uh and that was a big week for me to win that tournament
1: You mentioned winning by six strokes there and you you were you know, you had some tournaments that that uh, you really laughed the field. Like I said, you know, in your intro, you were, you know, way ahead at uh, at Q school, winning by 14 strokes at the you know TPC Sawgrass. Typically, I hear about you know stories from Q school that being some of the most stressful rounds guys play, but you sort of walked right through. What made it so easy for you? Was it the familiarity with TPC Sawgrass, or or was it something else?
3: Well, actually, the,
2: you know, my last practice round, the day before the last round. I didn't play very well at all. I was out there struggling a little bit with my swing. I went to the range, spent a good hour and a half working on my setup and just found a little key that I was kind of firming up my right knee and relaxing my left knee. And it just, it was just one of those weeks where that was the key was that little key on the setup. And it just, uh, it just was one of those dream weeks that you need that, you know, because that was the tour school. If I didn't make it that year, that was my third try. If I didn't make it that one, it was pretty much going to be, let's go back and figure out what we're going to do the rest of our life. So between having the adrenaline and the extra energy that week, and then that little key, um, you know, I'm still trying to find that magic that I had that week because that was probably the best week I've ever played. Came at a good time.
1: Indeed. Indeed. So, Donnie, I, I got to know, when when you're teeing it up on 17 at the Players' Championship and, you know, when you were trying to go through Q School, <laughs> is that the most stressful tee shot that you play all year?
2: It really is. I mean, it's, you, you know, the wind gets a little swirling there. Usually it's just a little right to left, and it's only about a nine iron. I mean, it's 135, 145 yards. Uh, you got huge crowds, though. You start thinking about it when you walk off the 16th green, you're looking over there and you're watching guys (laughs) hit that are in front of you. And it's, it's just a crescendo building until that shot. And, you know, golf is a very non-reactionary sport. You're just standing down there addressing the golf ball. And my mind is always more active than it should be anyway. So I'm sitting there thinking of all kinds of things, standing over the shot and you just do the best you can. You know, you're going to hit a few in the water, but, Every now and then you're going to hit one close, but it's it's kind of a survival shot uh, on that golf course. It's one that you really have to get over and and just focus on your target and swing. That's that's the key on that hole.
1: You got your first win on tour in 1986 at the Bob Hope Classic. You won that event in a playoff over John Cook. Take us through that event and you know who who did you get to play with in the. Uh, Celebrity Pro and piece because I got to imagine that's that's a, a fun benefit of getting to play in that tournament. That that
2: tournament was a blast. Um, for years, I, I got to play in it twenty or twenty five times. Once you win, you get to play every year. And I've played with uh, some great celebrities. I played one year. I played with Willie Mays first day, wow. Donnie Ben, and George Brett. So I mean, I played with two of the greatest baseball players ever, and I was you know I loved baseball so. I loved Johnny Bench and the Big Red Machine, and Willie was fantastic. Um, George Brett, good good golfer. But then I, when I was lucky enough to win in 86, I got to come back the next year and play with Mr. Bob Hope, uh, President Ford, and Tip O'Neill, who was you know, former Speaker of the House. And, and right. so that just became a friendship that I had with President Ford over the years, and he invited me to come up to Vail and play in his tournament. Got to play in that 10 or 12 times, and... Um, You know, great bunch of people, and, uh, you know, that was kind of my first experience, really, with, um, you know, learning more about the military and, you know, the the service that the president had, and just got to talk to him a little bit about that, and and just a great experience, uh, you know, being able to win that tournament and then having those relationships after that.
1: That win got you into the 86 Masters, which for so many of us is our favorite golf memory, you know, particularly myself, like you. I grew up a big Jack Nicholas fan. You were actually tied for second heading into the final round, only a stroke behind Greg Norman, tied with Seve and Bernard Longer and Nick Price. He eventually finished tied for 11th. But what was it like trying to sleep on the thought that you could actually win that thing, plus being in the mix with those guys?
2: As crazy as it was, I shot a 67 on Saturday, and I felt pretty calm that evening. I think I slept pretty well. I can't remember, but I woke up in the morning. I was shaving, and I was looking at myself, and I was saying to myself, there's your next Masters champion right there. You're you're looking at him, and I was confident. And then I think I had a pretty good practice session, but when I stood on that first tee one stroke back you know, in the next to last group, I swore I could have seen my knees shaking just a little bit. I'm thinking, <laughs> I wonder if those people can see that, because I could feel it. It was a little nervy, that front nine, but settled down and you know ended up having a good tournament. But being on the golf course that day, it was electric when Jack's name went up, uh, you know, and you look up on the leaderboard and you think to yourself, Jack thinks he can win this tournament at 45 years old. Uh, and then he starts making another birdie. Then he makes that eagle on 15, and it just was electric around the golf course. Uh, uh, You know, you're almost out there as much a spectator as you are a participant uh, because I was kind of out of the tournament after about 11 holes of winning. I was just trying to secure, you know, as high a finish as I could after that. But it was was a great day, and then when I got to watch it, it was uh, even better after that.
1: Like you said, you were in the the next to the last group. You were paired with Bernard Longer, and I had read that there were only about fifty people in the gallery around Norman and Nick Price because everyone to you know, to, you allude to was up ahead with either Nicholas and Sandy Lyle or Ballesteros and and Kite. Was it pretty quiet for you guys in the last two groups until you kind of got back? You know, most of the way through the back nine.
2: There might have been only family members in our group after Jack started making his run that. It was very much like that, Chris. There were, I'd, oh, there had to be 70% of the gallery out there was trying to get a look at Jack to finish. And you could tell exactly where he was when he would, you know, yeah, when he would eagle 15 and, and birdie 17. You knew exactly what had happened when, you know, when he would sink that putt. And uh, it seemed like everybody was following him toward the end of the day.
1: So, you know, to your point, you know, the roars are going up for Mr. Nicholas, you know, when he was putting on that charge, you know, I've heard so many stories about how loud it was and how it affected some guys, you know, who are, who are playing shots on other holes. Could could you tell, you know, to your point, could you hear what was going on? And, you know, and at what point did you guys sort of recognize that Nicholas was making a charge and he was about, you know, he was uh, in a position to win this thing?
2: I think it was about the time we got to eleven. Uh, you could see, every, you know, every three or four holes, there'd be one of the big leaderboards that you could see. I think 11, we got a pretty good look, uh, at the big leaderboard out there by 12, 13. And we could see, right. cause he would have been up, up ahead about four holes. And then, uh, you know, we kind of knew what was going on after that. you could see, you know, what was, uh, what was, what was happening with the big leaderboards. And that would be every couple holes or so, um, but you could tell. You could tell when the birdies were coming up with uh, with Jack on the course.
1: Your best finish in a major was tied for fifth at the Open Championship in 1992, which was played at Muirfield in Scotland, won by Nick Faldo. You shot 65 in the second round to get yourself near the top of the leaderboard. What do you remember about that week?
2: Uh, the, the, the British Open? Yeah. That was... Um that was one of my favorite tournaments going over there. I think I had to qualify that year, but it was just a, you know, great experience to travel overseas and play those type of golf courses. Uh, you know, it's just a thrill to qualify because then you know, you're, you're going to be there for the week and be be a part of the tournament. And then I had my coach over that year, Phil Ritson, that I was working with. And we just, you know, we just worked a lot on, uh, you know, downplaying the big event and, and just going through our procedure and, um, you know we just kind of kept my head down and, and tried to hit every shot as well as I could that week, and great having him over there, yeah know that was really nice to have a top five and a major that's you know some of the best fields of the year the 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 open championship and the u s open and the t p c those were where all the top players were there, so you yeah, know that was that was really fun for me to to be able to compete at that level.
1: Did you prepare differently to play when you're going over to to England or Scotland to play in a British Open with the link style and the and the weather and the wind and all of the things that are different than playing you know on the tour you know here in the U.S. Do you have to prepare differently for different types of shots that you're going to have to play over there versus here?
2: Yeah, you know you know you're going to have to hit some knockdown shots. Um, I think over the years a few of the things that I would work on, you know, before heading over there is I would. I'd be in Florida and it might be 90 degrees and I'm getting ready for the British Open where it could be 40 or 50 degrees wearing a, two sweaters and a rain jacket. But I would try to keep the back of my right hand real firm on the shot and not let the club flip, you know, where the head gets to the ball first. I would try to keep the butt of the club moving and I would do that with the back of my right hand. And that, that seemed to work a couple of years over there. And of course, you know, you're you're packing, might be 90 degrees out, and you're packing your best cashmere sweaters, your rain jackets, rain (laughs) pants. You know, you don't want to come up short over there because you don't know what kind of weather you're going to get over there. And um, that's hard to do when it's 95 degrees outside, is pack four or five sweaters.
1: I bet. So, Donnie, you you get your second win on tour at the 89 Texas Open. It was shortened to 54 holes, but another tournament that you won by a large uh, large number. You got seven over uh, Paul Azinger. So there were a few times, like I said earlier in your career, that you just sort of blew away the field, and this was another one of those times. What was it about that time in 89 at that Texas Open that uh, came together for you by such a big margin?
2: Um, well, I only, you know, went into the last round with a two-shot lead, and, you know, I was nervous. You know, that was always my strategy on Sunday was – I told the press the day before, they said, what's your strategy for Sunday? I said, it's like it's going to be every Sunday. Walk fast and look worried. And that seemed to be, (laughs) you know, what you always try to do on the tour because that's the payday, you know. A shot's going to cost you all this money. Your banker's going to let you know how much a stroke or two costs you. So you just kind of hang in there. I hung in there on the front nine, uh, made a couple quick bird, made eagle, I think, on the 10th hole and then ended up having about a five-shot lead with um, eight holes to go or so. And then, you know, that was then it was easier to relax a little bit. You're just trying to make a few pars and um, and then just kind of coasted into where it was one of those rare weeks that nothing bad happens. You know, you always, even your good weeks, you're going to have a double here or a couple of bogeys there, and that was just one of those weeks that, you know, nothing bad really seemed to happen out there. Doesn't really happen that often on tour, but um, but but that was the week for me that um, that I'll remember because you know winning on the tour by seven is is really tough to do. So
1: that was a great yeah, week. It, it, and to that end, Donnie, we've seen a number of times where people that once you get a big lead, they start to you know like we see in football, right? You start playing prevent defense, right? So you try to you're, you're playing yeah. prevent a, a big big number as opposed to continuing to keep your foot on the gas. How you know, how does it, you you know, you manage to not, right, it, it seems like not play that way, but does that come into your mind? Do you have an internal struggle like, you know, okay, here, maybe I take a two iron off the tee versus I would normally hit driver. How do you make sure that you don't let people get back in to the tournament once you've built up a big lead?
2: That is a, that is a really tough thing to do. I mean, you see it in all sports, don't you?
1: Basketball yeah.
2: team trying to... Hold the ball and, and kind of wind the clock down a little bit. Then they don't get off a good shot. Um, golf, you just, you just, I mean, you just try to play one shot at a time, and you try to concentrate as much as you can. What you can do is you take a little bit more of a conservative line, but you try to make as an aggressive swing as you can. So that that was always my strategy. Is you know, if there's water left and I got a three shot lead, I may take it. I may aim at another five yards right, but I'm going to try to swing as aggressive as I can. And that's the key where you're not trying to steer it. You know how you All get right. out on the golf course and you try to steer it down there. You got water left and houses to the right. And you just try to ease it down the middle and you're going to, you know, you're going to hit somebody's roof without, without a <laughs> doubt. But if you <laughs> swing it with confidence and say, I'm sending this down the fairway, at least that gives you a better chance to, to hit a good shot. And it's, it's not easy to do, though, you know, when you're out there and a lot of people are watching, a lot of money on the line. It's it's easier said
1: than done, but that's, uh, that's what sure. you try to do. So, Donnie, like I mentioned in your intro, you were uh, inducted into your alma mater, Sports Hall of Fame. What was it like being recognized like that by uh, Jacksonville State?
2: Yeah, Jacksonville, I mean, you know, Jacksonville University had some great basketball players back there, uh, Pembroke Burroughs, Artis Gilmore. Um, you know, they played for the national championship against UCLA three or four years before I got there. And so always had a great basketball program. So it was great to be included with some of the, um, some of those athletes and be able to go up there every couple of years and say hi to the guys. Um, it was just a, it's nice to be recognized once in a while when you, when you've helped a school like that and then you, you get to go back and, and be a part of it. It's, it's part of the rewards of, um, you know, working really hard and having some breaks along the way.
1: Donnie, for our listeners on the Armed Forces Radio Network here, I know you've done some work with the USO down there in Orlando. Talk about the things that uh, that you've done to, you know, be a part of, uh, you know, our military and uh, and our veterans.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're not going to find a bigger fan than me of the military and the sacrifice that they go through. I've been lucky. I had a uh, good friend from Maryland, Rick Cowell, that does work with Troops First Foundation, him and David Farady, um, you know, invited me to go on a few trips over to Iraq, a couple of USO trips, and I got to do that in 07 and 09 during Thanksgiving. But um, a lot of the forward operating bases there in Iraq and visit the guys, you know, that are over there. We took a bunch of golf clubs, balls, hats, gave away a bunch of things, did some clinics and, you know, gave some lessons, let them hit a bunch of shots. And it was, I mean, as far as golf goes, it had to be one of the highlights of my life to, to visit, visit the troops, you know, in a, in a war area like that, and just bring a little bit of diversion to them, you know, while they're out doing their job and um, really memorable for me. And, you know, the guys were so funny over there too. They would show up. I'm thinking there's not going to be many people show up for golfers over here. And we had have 500, 600 people there, having, you know, little putting clinics and makeshift driving ranges and stuff. And there were some great swings over there. One of the guys had a beautiful said, Man, you got a great swing. He said, oh, yeah, we got some good swings over here, Donnie. We just don't have any grass. There's nothing <laughs> but sure, rocks everywhere, rocks and sand. They, <laughs> not a lot of good tracks over there in Iraq. But it was, you know, it was so much fun for me and, um, you know, kept in touch with a few of the guys over the years and, uh, just super. And, you know, so much respect for the, what the sacrifices. got to meet a lot of the families and, you know, just see the sacrifice that they go through. And now, you know, a lot of the guys are on their eighth, 10th, 12th tour overseas. And it's just, you can see, um, you know, what it does when they're packing up to leave for a year at a time, you know, the families and, I just kind of have so much respect in what they do and what they have done, you know, for a couple hundred years for our country, really.
1: Right. So, Donnie, when might we see you out the, on the Champions Tour next?
2: Well, I'm going to try to qualify in Iowa in about three weeks, the principal.
1: i uh, got a little three-day
2: tournament here in Orlando starting Monday. I'll be playing a lot of the events this year, try to qualify for the senior U.S. Open, uh, I'm up here in the villages right now doing a, an event for uh combat veterans to careers, a group I started working with a couple years ago. And nice. they, we have a little thing here. That's, that's really fun. David Booth has a great group that, that transitions uh, soldiers to jobs within the golf industry up here in the villages and a bunch of great guys. They, they love it. I come up and play golf once in a while with them. And, uh, you know, we gamble a little bit and just have a good time. And we're, we're up here raising some money for them today. And it's, uh, but I'll play a full schedule out there on the champions this year. Try to qualify. I have to qualify for the tournaments now, so it's it's a little tougher. But yeah, just trying to get the game back and see if I can, you know, make a little something happen before it's all over.
1: There you go, Donnie. How can our listeners follow you uh, online and over social media?
2: Uh, mostly Twitter. I'm at Donnie Hammond. D o n n i e, and then. Hammond's H A M M O N D I post up some pictures and do some things. Actually, I'll put something up uh here pretty soon, some pictures from the event today and uh you know, I'll keep everybody up to date what's going on and you know, I'll be following you guys. I I love love your show and listeners are going to have a great time listening to Ben Wright. He is fantastic. Got got some super stories and I could listen to him talk
1: all day. He's he's fantastic. Indeed. Donnie, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to to be a part of the show. You're fantastic. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. I'd love to love to continue the conversation and hear how uh, how this season's going for you. I would love to, Chris. I,
2: I'd love to. Anything to help you guys and the soldiers. So
1: you let me know anytime. All right. I appreciate it, Donnie. Thanks for being here again, and all the best to you and your family, and hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with you real soon. All right. Thank you, Chris. All right, take care, Donnie. Donnie Hammond, boy, I tell you what—that uh, last piece, uh, talking about the, the the things that he's doing uh, with uh, the USO and, and our military and, uh, and raising funds and stuff like that—you know, boy, I really appreciate Donnie sharing that and some great stories and being a part of that uh, back nine in '86 at the uh, at the Masters. You know, uh, everyone who listens to this show knows what a big fan of Mister Nicholas I am, and '86 has a, uh, a particular uh, place in my heart. So uh to hear that story was absolutely wonderful. Look forward to catching up with Donnie Hammond again real soon. All right, now joining me on the uh, Seymour Putter's guest line is the aforementioned Mr. Ben Wright. Let me remind you about Mr. Wright's background because it's so amazing. Every time he joins me, I want for any of our new listeners that haven't joined us when he's been on the show in the past to get a feel for what this man's background was like. He was educated at the Felstead School in Essex, England, and at London University, was a Russian interpreter in the British Army. 1954, he became a sports writer, then a golf correspondent with The Daily Dispatch in Manchester and The Daily Mirror in London, before becoming a freelance writer and a broadcaster in 1961. He wrote weekly columns for The Observer and Sunday Times national newspapers, contributed regularly to Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated. He did broadcasts for the BBC Radio and Television and ITV, a British uh, commercial network, was a founder and associate editor for Golf World in the UK and joined the Financial Times as its first-ever golf correspondent in 1966 and wrote a weekly column until 1989, in addition to serving as an announcer for CBS TV Sports starting in 1972. Mr. Wright's broadcasting golf career with the BBC, ITV, Australian TV, and New Zealand fantastic. From 1993 to 1996, he hosted the World Feed of the Sun City Million Dollar Challenge, and broadcast the World Golf uh, World Cup of Golf in Cape Town, South Africa, in 1996. And he will forever live in the minds and hearts of golf fans for the wonderful work he did at CBS Broadcasting, particularly at the Masters and, like I say, in 1986 with Mr. Nicholas's amazing victory there, but for so many years prior to that. And I am so honored that he is back with me next on the tee this morning. Mr. Wright, thank you for being here.
3: It's my pleasure, uh, Chris. I'm. I, I get a bit of embarrassed by your lengthy dissertation about my mediocre career. But we won't <laughs> hold that against you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Wright, you know, I, like millions of people around the world, love the Masters tournament. It's it's But it's missing a little something. And that little something, like I say every time you're on the show, is, is your voice calling from the 15th hole. Yeah, I miss you being a part of that event. Do you miss being a part of it, too? Oh, I do, uh, Chris.
3: It's one of the things I most miss in life. And when the Masters comes round, as, of course, it just has, uh, I get really antsy. Uh, uh, I, you know, I would love to be a part of that. But it doesn't matter. Um, to, you know, you have to move on. And uh, I was absolutely uh, bowled over by the performance of Jordan Spieth a few weeks ago. It was, I thought, one of the greatest tour de force that I've ever witnessed. And for a kid of 21, it's hard for me uh, to realize how mature and so composed that young man was, and there was nothing better, Chris, than the up and down he made at the 18th on Saturday evening, having double bogeyed the 17th. A double Mm -hmm. bogey at 18 would probably have derailed him, and I have had the shot he had, and I played it twice, and I never got within 30 feet of the hole when I was playing pretty good golf, single-figure handicap. And I heard, and I I don't know, I've not confirmed it, I heard that Faldo and uh, Baker Finch went out there and tried the same shot, and they didn't get within 30 feet of the hole. So uh, I just want to, you know, I wanted to say before I forgot <laughs> just how magnificent uh, the golf of young Jordan Steve has become. And, I mean, he is now knocking at um, Rory McElroy's door. And what a wonderful prospect it is for, for anybody who loves golf as much as I do to think that these two may be going at it head-to-head for decades. You never know.
1: You know, Miss Ray, people are talking so much, and you and you kind of allude to it about Jordan Spieth having such a very high golf IQ, and it was certainly a sign of intelligence for him to seek the counsel of you know Ben Crenshaw's longtime caddy there at Augusta, Carl Jackson, to help learn how Mm. to play the course, even though he finished second, you know, the year before. So you know, I mean, Mm. sort of, what did you think about him reaching out to Carl Jackson in that way?
3: I thought, you know, everything about. Jordan the inspires me uh, totally i I can see no weakness in his game because whenever he makes uh, the vestige of a mistake, he has this ability just like Jack Nicholas had to conjure something quite magical quickly to restore the balance as it were right the boat and you know i don't they don't come along too often and I when I allude to Jack Nippers, um I think that that's the highest praise I can bestow on Jordan Spieth mm-hmm. that he you know he has that ability to conjure up magic when most required and I think uh, that's a very rare bird in this game of ours
1: Before you joined me Mr. Ed, I was talking to Donnie Hammond who was in the next to last group in the final round back in nineteen eighty six. Do you recall Donnie being in contention? Because he's a guy that, you know, you lose uh, you know, in that in that wonderful event because you had, you know, obviously Mr. Nicholas with the win, but you know, Greg Norman was in the he was in the final group along with Nick Price. You had Ballesteros and, and Tom Kite and obviously Mr. Nicholas and Sandy Lyle. But Donnie Hammond isn't the name that comes to mind when you think about, you know, the the, the final round of the eighty six Masters. Do you remember Donnie being back there? I do. I, I remember Tony very fondly. Um, I think
3: he probably was not as mature as he might have been at that time. Listening to him as I did when I called you uh, and uh, they put me in to listen to the program, I can uh, hear a maturity and grace uh, that Donnie Hammond was a little short of in those days. I, th- I never thought he believed sufficiently in himself to really succeed. You know, he was always uh, self-deprecating. And, I, you know, I think sometimes you just got to assert yourself in any sport. You, you've got to really firmly believe, and I'm not sure that Donnie really firmly believed that he was as good as he was.
1: Sandy Lyle played with Mr. Nicholas in that final round. Um, did you ever get a chance to talk to Sandy Lyle to get his perspective on what it was like playing alongside Jack Nicholas that day?
3: Yes, I did. I talked, uh, as a matter of fact, that same evening, uh, with Sandy and, um, He said to me that it was just one of the most moving experiences of his whole life. He hadn't uh, any idea that Nicholas had a chance to win the event when they started out. And he even thought, as I did, that Nicholas may have blown it when he bogeyed 12. But, of course, uh, the rest is history. And mm-hmm. Sandy, Sandy said, it was almost as exciting to witness Nicholas winning as it was to win himself when he made that great bunker shot from the fairway bunker at 18 uh, to birdie the hole, which had not been done to win the event in the history of the Masters at that time.
1: You were a part of so many of those wonderful masters events over the years and I'm sure you had some dealings with Clifford Roberts, who was known to be a, a sharp critic of the you know of the broadcasters. What what was, what were your dealings like with Mr. Roberts?
3: Well, I was scared to death of him, uh, Chris. I was absolutely scared to death of him mm-hmm. and uh Bill McPhail, who was then uh the boss of uh, CBS TV sports uh, pushed me into his cottage to be vetted by Mr. Roberts before I made my debut for CBS at the Masters. And, of course, I was frightened silly. And uh, this booming voice said, Do you like tea, young Wright, most of you limes?" And I said, Yes, sir, I do. <laughs> and, he, and he pointed to a lovely China... He said uh, that was setting set on the table, and he said, "Pour yourself a cup and enjoy it." And uh, before I talk to you, and I, of course I nearly burned myself fatally by trying to drink it too hot. <laughs> uh, but I gagged it down, and then I shall never forget it. Mister Roberts said, "Talk to me, boy," and I said, "What would you like me to talk about?" Mr. Roberts, and he said, I don't care, just talk to me, boy. So I started to reel off uh, some of the things I'd accomplished which were not very significant, and he held up his hand after for about 45 seconds and said, that'll do. And I had that awful sinking feeling that I must have said something wrong and that I was being summarily dismissed, never to be heard from again. And, um, he said to me, uh, are you worried why I stopped you so soon? And, uh, I said, well, <laughs> I hadn't said very much, Mr. Roberts." And He said, you didn't need to, boy. And I said, why, sir? And he said, well, MacPhail uh, brought in a, a gentleman last year from Glasgow, Scotland. And, um. His name was Bob Ferrier. Well, I knew Bob very well because we were colleagues on the Daily Mirror at one stage. And uh, and I, I, I wondered why Roberts would talk about Bob Ferrier. And then he said, and I might tell you, Mr. Wright, I did not understand a goddamn word he said <laughs> in any of the four days. But you all do. Have a good week. And I was dismissed. <laughs> I, and, I, and I left. And, and, of course, the rest is history, you know. I stayed with the network for 27 years. 27 of the most <laughs> wonderful years of my life, I might add. I mean, I never never had a better time than working for Mr. Frank Chitinian, along with Jack Whitaker, Pat Somerol, Ken Venturi, and all that gang. Including the idiot Gary McCord. <laughs> I have to get that in, in the hope he's listening somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll make sure I tweet that out to him. Maybe he'll uh, he'll take a listen. So, so Mr. Wright, is that is that the same story? Because I'd read a I'd read a story that following an interview that you had done with Peter Oosterhaus during a, a rain delay in, in the third round inside the Butler cabin is that Mr. Roberts had made a proclamation uh, about that uh, you had cemented your position on the broadcast team. Is that the same story?
3: Well, yes, it is. Um, he wrote, uh, Mr. Roberts wrote to Bill McPhail, often that debut of mine for, CBS at the Masters, my first Masters for them. Uh, He wrote a letter to Mr. McPhail saying, that young English boy, Wright, uh, was sufficiently astute and uh, speaks well enough for me to understand, uh, and he should be moved to a much more prominent position. Well, of course, as a rookie, they hide you at 14 uh, because it doesn't get on the air much, much more now than it ever did in the old days. Right. And um, I was moved to 15 because anything that Roberts told Macphail, Macphail uh, made sure he did it with alacrity because, there were, you know, everyone at CBS was scared uh, witless that um we would lose the contract for the Masters, which I'm happy to say has never happened. And it's a year right. by year thing. But of course being moved to 15 uh, really made my career, as it were, because it is definitely one of the uh, pivotal parts of the of the of the tournament. Uh, the 15th hole. It still is, even you know. I mean. You know, uh, it's amazing how guys out of nowhere can take a double bogey there. And uh, this year, I, I noticed that more people went in the water behind the green than they than they did in front of the green in the pond uh, in front of the green. And, and and that is something that I never saw in my day. It was very rare uh, for anybody to go in the water at the 16th hole behind the, the 15th green. And um, very, very uh, plentiful were the shots that went into the pond in front of the 15th green.
1: That's mm-hmm. so, right. Uh, you, you, you mentioned it a moment ago now about the potential budding rivalry that we might be able to see between Jordan Speeth and, and Rory McIlroy for, for many years to come. But I'm curious, do, do you think that golf needs a rivalry like that. We never really got it. You know, we, we wanted it for so many years, right, with Tiger and Phil. And we never really got it there. We we had it way back when, when, when Jack and Arnie were, were kind of going back and forth in the early sixties with the green jackets. But golf, you know, to me, golf was is so much better when not only did you have Jack and Arnie going at it, but you know, the introduction of Gary Player, and I know you and Mr. Player are very good friends. We had we had Billy Casper, who people may not, you know, don't don't give enough credit to for how often he won. In the 60s, you know, Lee Cervino and Tom Watson. We had so many great players in the 70s mm-hmm. sort of battling it out. Do, do we need a, a, a one versus two battle, or, is, or do you think golf is better when there are a lot of guys in the mix?
3: I think it's, uh, I think this rivalry uh, between McElroy and Steve is absolutely, uh, it's a work of genius because it's. I think it's going to come, it's going to bring young people. Uh, flocking to the game like nothing probably has in the last two decades. And, um, you know, I take a point entirely. I think uh, golf at that level needs a really wonderful rivalry. And I can't see anything but in Spieth and uh, McElroy, just as it was magical uh, with the big three, Nicholas Palmer, and player. and I must say that you mentioned Casper. And Billy Casper should have been a member of that group if he had been recognized right. for the talent he had and the, the brilliance that he displayed. He was probably the most aggressive putter uh, before Tom Watson at the start of his career that I ever saw. And uh, Billy Casper was... Probably the greatest golfer, most underrated in my mm-hmm. lifetime.
1: hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I had I've had the I had the honor of, of uh, having Mr. Casper on the show a few times over the last couple of years, and it's and it's amazing. To your point, he is not given enough credit for how often he won. Back in the '60s, I mean, he he won just as often as Mr. Nicholas did, and more often than Palmer and Player combined. Yet, few people. Seem to know that, hence, you know his book, the Big Three, and me. Um, yeah, I agree. He uh, he's certainly, unfortunately, a man who who has flown too long underneath the radar. Yeah, you
3: know, um, when I first came to this country, uh, thanks to Jack Whitaker, I was made an overseas member of Wingfoot, and which was really a fantastic um, privilege for me. Uh, so that if I had any time before flying back to London between, you know, events for CBS, I would go there and play with Jack, and uh, we had a lovely time there. But I never could get over the fact that when Casper won the Open at Wingford in 1959, he had fewer parts, I think it was... 104 than anybody had ever had that wing foot in a major event. And I don't suppose uh, that that has changed. I would still bet that Casper's 104 putts in 72 holes is pr- probably a record that still stands. I'd love to know. Right.
1: right. So, Mr. Wright, more forward and and stuff that has happened more recently here. Now, following you know Jim Furyk's win last week at Harbertown, people are starting to take a look at his career uh, and um, kind of you know reflect. Is is Jim Furyk a Hall of Famer? Seventeen wins, one major back at the '03 U.S. Open at Olympia Fields. His career is right there with Freddie Couples, who had fifteen wins and a major. In your mind, uh, are those two guys Hall of Famers?
3: Well, I suppose
1: yes. I I'm not sure
3: that I know anymore what is a Hall of Famer because I think the World Golf Hall of Fame got uh, really, uh, got it all wrong. They they allowed too many people in that I uh, felt were questionable. Right. And, and right. you know, and even my countryman, uh, Colin Montgomery, who I like enormously as a person, uh, he, but he, you know, he got in without ever having won a major, and and I, I question that. And and I'm very, uh, I'm very happy that they have sort of taken a year off, and are uh, starting to rethink the way they do things. But you know, you know, I would, I couldn't possibly allow a golfer into the World Golf Hall of Fame if he had not win, uh, not won at least one major. And uh, I'm I'm not trying to disparage Colin Montgomery, who is a phenomenal golfer for uh, the Europeans for a start and and a very good uh, Ryder Cup captain. And, um, you know, I I mean, he headed the Order of Merit in Europe for seven consecutive years. So, uh, you you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not really disparaging him, but I think you've got to have hallmarks uh, for getting into the hall, and, and, and majors are still, as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that you can achieve in the game of golf.
1: And and I agree. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, why I asked the question, because when I when I look at somebody that has won, like, you know, I could say 15 times for Fred Couples, you know, 17 times for for Jim Furyk, you have one major, I, I believe and I could be wrong about this, but I believe it's Gary Player who has talked about, you know, having a certain threshold you need to have to, to be considered a Hall of Famer. And I think he threw the number out there, six majors. In order to get in, I could be wrong about that number. I'd have to look it up, but I would think you would have to win to your point. You know, it not, maybe not even one major, but multiple majors. When I think about Hall of Fames, you know, whether it's in the other sports—baseball, you know, football, hockey, basketball—you know, these these are folks that you know have been extraordinary at at uh, what they did. And to your point about diluting mm-hmm. potentially the Hall of Fame, but uh, you know, a dozen wins. One major tournament to me doesn't seem like the number that I would have in mind. I would think it would be multiple majors to get yourself into a you know into a Hall of Fame. I'm I'm curious uh, I, you know. Uh, I I, I'm
3: I'm with you completely, Chris. Um, you know, I I didn't mention Freddie Couples who got in at the same time as Colin Montgomery, but he and Jim Furyk having only one. One major each. Uh, I, I somehow find myself. If that is true about Gary Player saying you, you should have six majors, I would I would really go along with that very willingly.
1: Yeah, and I and I'm with you. I would think you know that at some point you know and that gets you know Sir Nick Valdo in to get the upper echelon folks. That's that's a, that's a tough number to reach. And I understand that you know you may not have as many members in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So it, and that six majors is a is a tough number to get to. But I think that's that's what a Hall of Fame is, right? It's not for everybody. It's not for the very good. It's for the great. And uh, yeah, I'm interested absolutely. To see if, what they do with that going You're forward? You know something.
3: You know something, Chris, it became uh, a thing that they were going to let people in. Uh, what, Whatever happened, they were going to let a lot, a lot of people in every year. I th- think that it would be much more sensible if they only uh, allowed the person into the World Golf Hall of Fame, um, even if they went five years without even letting anybody in. Uh, you know, I think uh, it became an avalanche and, 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 a, and a really destructive avalanche In the, to destroy the standards. And, uh, uh, you know, that's probably a very unkind thing to say, but I'm sorry, it's something I believe.
1: And I'm with you. Mr. I think hey, kind of going maybe a little a little bit away from uh, the golf course itself, but you had a role in the movie Ten Cup, calling a shot that Kevin Costner's carry, uh, character Roy McEvoy hits a bank shot off a portage on.
3: Um, I don't know about this. Uh, I didn't. I'm not sure that I heard you correctly, Chris. Um, I, I I I I shall never forget the fact that I had.
1: Uh, Rory is
3: a candy when he was a 16 year old boy. I don't know. Have I told you that story? <clears throat> I think I've lost you. Uh oh. Uh oh. Mm. Hello. Hello.
1: Hello? Hello, Mr. Wright, can you hear us?
3: Yeah, I lost you. Yeah, we
1: lost you there for a second. We're still here.
3: <laughs> well, we're back again. I, I'm very sorry about that. I, there's nothing oh, no worries. I can... Anyhow, what was your question? i forgot. forgotten.
1: <laughs> That's okay. I said, you you had a role in the movie Tin Cup. You, you called the shot that uh, Kevin Costner's character, Roy McAvoy, hits a bank shot off a Portage on onto the green. Um, I was just curious, what what was it like being a part of that movie and how many times did it take them to get that shot right? Well, it was a lot of fun. Um although, you know,
3: movie making can be very boring. That take uh of of uh uh Costner, Kevin Costner hitting the Portageon and spinning the ball onto the green took 86 takes. it was all of one day with 2500 extras who had breakfast lunch and supper and uh, when he finally pulled off the shot kevin uh, they they rushed forward as they had to do 86 times but there was a real sense of elation they they overdid it almost uh because they were so glad they were going to be allowed to go home. And uh, <laughs> it was, it, it, I mean, those kind of things, uh, they, get, they do drag on you a bit, but at the same time, I thought it was a great movie, except I didn't like the end, the ending of the movie. And I complained to the director, Ron Shelton. I said, Ron, that was absolutely a ridiculous ending to a really good movie. And he took a drag on his foot-long cigar and said, that's Hollywood, baby. And that's the (laughs) end of that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's great. Uh, That's right. You had an amazingly successful career. You're an Emmy Award winner. You were nominated for an Emmy multiple times. I know we're in an ultra-politically correct society now, but, you know, actors and you know athletes in particular have done far worse things than you and have gotten second, third, fourth chances. We see it so often in Major League Baseball. We see it all the time in the NFL these days. And, and you know, God bless. And I want to give a shout out to Matt Adams and Dominic Scarano for reaching back out to you to have them on, have you on their show, Fairways of Life, which is on SiriusXM's PGA channel. But, you know, do you ever wonder to yourself now when you see what athletes have done and in, in the, in the really horrible things, some, you know, with the, whether it's drugs or domestic violence or all the things we see, do you ever wonder, you know... Yeah these guys get multiple chances. Why didn't I get a second chance?
3: Well, uh, the great thing is, uh, that Matt Adams, uh, and, uh, his producer, Dominic Scarano gave me a chance to be on Sirius XM with them on the fairways of life. And that was really right. the only, the only second chance I've ever had. And I must say, uh, It's much more fun, Chris, for me to broadcast on the radio because you're not so utterly scared about this political correctness, this rubbish that, you know, that virtually makes people afraid to speak their mind. And I I presumably uh, should have been a bit more careful, maybe, uh, because I spoke my mind to a reporter uh, who admitted she had no idea of one end of a golf club from the other. That should have been a warning signal to run for the Bushes. But uh, unfortunately, (laughs) I stayed and I got uh, shot down as a result. But um, I I can honestly say this without, I hope, offending anybody. That at least a thousand women have rubbed up against me since uh, I said that boobs got in the way of a golf swing, and said, "Of course they do. Of course they get in the way." And you know, the very fact is, what I, you know, all I said was the truth. But that the truth is sometimes not allowed if it's politically incorrect, and on this occasion uh i you know i i got uh, i got the bullet after a long time
1: <clears throat> i'm just so surprised and you know like i say i'm disappointed because i miss your voice being associated with the game of golf and getting to see and hear you on on tv but i i just don't understand you know here we are so many years later and like i say we see we see athletes and actors that you know continue to make the same mistake over and over and over again and and uh talent wins out and they get to have that second third and fourth chance i just never understood why somebody whether it was cbs or not hasn't reached out to you over the you know 25 30 years since uh, since you've been gone to to get uh, someone of your talent and your magnitude uh, doing something on a regular basis, whether at at this stage in your life you want to do that or not, but uh, all the years that happened in between because uh, you should have been a staple in the game of golf.
3: Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, All I can say is that when Matt Adams asked me to be on his show for the rest of my life, I was close to 80 years of age at the time and I said, Matt, that could be three weeks. <laughs> and, he said, and Matt said, we'll take a chance on that. And here it is. I, I, think, it's, I think it's four years I've been with them now. If it, if it right. isn't four, it's three. And uh, it's been a, a very rewarding thing for me, Chris. Uh, I like to talk about golf because it is my passion. Uh, alas, not as a player much anymore. I've uh, seen better days as far as that is concerned. But I I still have the same affection for the game and its players that I had in the first place when I watched Ben Hogan win at Carnoustie, the British Open, and determined that I would spend the rest of my life around golf. And the fact that I have been able to do so is just such a joy to me uh, as I approach my 83rd birthday, you know, it's such a joy to have been able to achieve one's ambition uh, and, and have a wonderful time as I have had traveling the world at other people's expense. And, um, Seeing all the great places and all the great golf courses, all the great players, I mean, how can you possibly, you can't beat that, I don't think.
1: No, I I agree completely with that. One more, Mr. Wright, before we let you go, and something people may not know, that you're a a golf course designer as well. You're the architect for the Cliss Valley uh, Golf Course up in Travelers Rest, South Carolina, which opened, uh, I think, what, 20 years ago now almost, uh, to some rave reviews. Are you still active in golf course design projects? Not really.
3: No, it was a hobby. It was a hobby, Chris, and um – I just got lucky. I got a beautiful piece of property, and it would have been a crime if I'd have screwed it up. Uh, And it's (laughs) just worked out very well. And actually, you're you're spot on. Um, We opened 20 years ago on October the 2nd when I put on an exhibition match between uh, Paul uh, Azinger, Jim Colbert, Bob Murphy, and the local boy, Jay Haas. And uh, Azinger and Haas challenged the old boys who were on the senior tour at the time to uh, a match for their own money. And I I never saw so many $100 bills flashing about, but uh, (laughs) it made for fantastic entertainment because at the very first hole, Azinger hold his second shot with a wedge uh, for an eagle two. Then the the old boys hit back at the second hole, which is a par three, where they both made twos. And we had a chipping eagle at the uh, sixth hole by Jim Colbert. And, I mean, what a fantastic way to open a golf course with a match of such quality. Um, right. As a matter of fact, Hayes uh, uh, and um, uh, Bob Murphy both hit, hit, both scored 68 off the tip of the back geez, wow. and neither of them had ever seen the golf
1: course. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Mr. Wright, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show again with me this morning. You are welcome here. For the rest of your life, too, I might add. We, we, you, your stories are so wonderful to hear, and uh, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for being. This is the third time we've been fortunate enough to have you on the show. I hope we get to have you on a whole bunch more because uh, I could sit back and listen to you tell stories like Donnie Hammond said, all day long.
3: Well, uh, the thing is, Chris, you better make it quick. You know. <laughs> 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 I'm getting way up there now, <laughs> but I love it. Uh, you call me anytime.
1: All right. Thank you, Mr. Wright. All the best to you and your family, and I look forward to the next opportunity. Hopefully, I will absolutely make it real soon.
3: Thank you very much, Chris. I've enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, Mr. Wright. Enjoy your weekend. Ben Wright, and I tell you what, it doesn't get any better than that, folks. You want to listen to a gentleman who knows so much about the game of golf because he was sitting there watching it happen and broadcasting it to, to the rest of us. Uh, uh, you know, to hear him tell stories about, you know, his time at Augusta National is something that never gets old to me. He was there, you know, when when Jack obviously won in 86, but also, you know, for there for everything going all the way back to the 60s. So uh, I look forward to the, uh, the privilege of having Mr. Wright back on the show again real soon. All right. Before we close up shop, I want to remind you about a great book from our friends Dave Stockton and Dave Stockton Jr. called "Own Your Game." If you're starting to sharpen your game up physically, and I know for our, you know, as Donnie Hammond said, for our friends up in the Northeast, uh, my co-host on Thursday Night Tailgate, Bob Lazeri, still snowing up there as uh, as late as this week. So, uh, if you're just starting to get the the rust off, that way, remember, so much of the game is played in that five inch space between our ears. Get your mind right. In this latest book, the Stocktons let you know how to use your mind to play winning golf. Own Your Game recreates the experience of riding 18 holes with Dave Stockton at one of his highly sought-after corporate outings and draws from his experience as a champion tour player, a two-time major winner, and a revered coach. He shows you how to think better, stay calmer, execute more consistently, and most importantly, how to enjoy the game more thoroughly. Go to StocktonGolf.com to get your copy, and for a couple extra dollars, he'll even autograph it for you. All right, everybody, it's time for me to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks one more time to Donnie Hammond and Mr. Ben Wright for joining me this morning and making the show so much fun, and we thank you for tuning in. You know we appreciate you the very most. Please also check out our sister show, ThursdayNightTailgate.com, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazeri, our announcer, Joe Nusa. That show airs live every Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can catch it on Blog Talk Radio uh, starting again at 10.15 Eastern Time on the Armed Forces Radio Network. And on Friday nights, you can hear us from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time over on Boost Radio and starting again 11 o'clock Eastern Time on Armed Forces Radio. We're joined every single week by legends from around the NFL and the CFL. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. You can find the shows next this show next on the dot net online and thursday dot com as well from either site you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free plus keep up to date with who uh who some of our future guests are going to be. Thank you again for choosing to listen to the show today again. I appreciate you the very most until next week. Hit them straight, my friends.
2: of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town <whistles> what? Get those tap heels in line and
0: let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins?
1: Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save.
0: Left, left, left and step ball change.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.